Good morning. Uh, thank you for allowing uh, to part with your beautiful senior pastor this morning. You definitely got the short end of that deal. And, uh, you know, <laughs> I've known Pastor Mike for a long time. I sat beside him uh, in Bible college. We played on the same hockey team together, and, and I can vouch that, that he is a changed man. And uh, he, is a good, he is a good senior pastor. And so bear with me this morning, and, and thank goodness we're here to open the Lord's Word and, and not hear from me. So if you have your Bibles, Jeremiah 17 uh, is where we're going to be camping out this morning. And we're going to be talking about a subject that's, that's near and dear to my heart. It's something that, if I'm honest with you, I, I wrestle with. It's something that I uh, was wrestling with on the drive here this morning. And, uh, and it's this whole idea of primarily idolatry, uh, but more specifically, as we'll see what Jeremiah tells us, uh, specifically the fear of man and this idea, and this is so prevalent in our culture and it's something that gets swept under the rug so easily even in our churches uh, where we uh, hold people in higher esteem than we ought to and we subsequently minimalize God and his role in our lives. And, uh, and we give way too much power to people, what they think, what they feel about us, how they will respond to our actions and our decisions. Uh, and, and, and we kind of fall into these vicious cycles where we can be held hostage by what other people think and do. And this is something that our culture kind of propagates. If you want to get ahead in your workplace, if you want to uh, find a good spouse, uh, the whole dating scene, you know, it's, it's just how do you posture yourself? How do you present yourself? And it can become just such a, a damaging thing for us as Christians. And so this morning, my hope is, is that as we look at, at Jeremiah 17, uh, we will have the opportunity uh, to hear, number one, what God says about idolatry, what God says about the fear of man, but then also have a chance to evaluate our own hearts and evaluate where we kind of land in this area. And, uh, and so I was reflecting this, kind of this past week and um, was reflecting in my junior high years. And some of you might have kids in junior high. Some of you might just have parents of boys. And, and you know that as they grow up, uh, what junior high boys do together is really two things. When we hang out, we make fun of each other and we punch each other. That's more or less what junior hires do. And, uh, you know, it's all about how we kind of socialize. It's how we establish our hierarchy, who's kind of the cool one and who's not. And, uh, and I remember uh, coming back from a hockey game. Uh, I, like I said, I, I play hockey. I played hockey with your, your beloved pastor. And uh, came back late from a hockey game. And on Halloween, our youth group at the time uh, was doing an all-nighter. Um, paradise for a junior high boy. Uh, no parents, and you can stay up all night. It, it was the highlight of our, of our year in terms of our youth group kind of events, and so we uh, hustled to this event, and, uh, and it, it, junior high is kind of an insecure time. You know, there's a lot happening. You're, some, for some students, they're changing schools. Almost all students kind of leave Sunday school and they move into youth group. Uh, emotionally, hormonally, there's an awful lot happening. Junior high boys and girls. And so it's a, it's a kind of a volatile, kind of fragile time. And so uh, coming to this youth event, there was a little bit of anxiety. There was a little bit of, you know, who's going to be there? Are my friends going to be there? You know, you know did I miss anything because I was playing hockey? And, uh, and so I got there, and I met up with my friends, and we were doing what junior, junior high boys do, making fun of each other and punching each other. And we were standing in front of the church, and we were kind of laughing and, and having fun with one another. And, uh, and then out of the church doors uh, came a guy named Adam. And Adam was a grade 12 student in our youth group, and, and quite frankly, he was... He was the best thing that came out of our youth group. Uh, he, he was a great musician. He was athletic, uh, good-looking dude. Uh, if you were friends with Adam, you had it made. And, and Adam was, uh, was a really nice guy, and so he was coming towards us, 
And, uh, and so we kind of stood out of attention, kind of gave him a wide berth, you know, kind of let him come into our little group. And, and he's talking to us. And, uh, and all of a sudden, as we are talking and we're laughing and we're having fun and we're just kind of getting into this all-nighter, a white, and I'll remember it clear as day, a white Dodge Caravan comes flying up in front of the church, sliding door opens, four guys in ski masks get out, grab Adam, throw him in the van and drive away. And I should time out. Um, the story ends well. So <laughs> I, all of a sudden I saw the oxygen just kind of leave the room. Hang with me. It, it ends well. Okay. Uh, but for all intents and purposes, Adam is kidnapped. And, and so I'm standing there in shock uh, and just thinking like, did I actually just witness what I think I just saw? I just saw four guys grab the most beautiful specimen in our youth group, <laughs> throw him into a van and he's gone. And, uh, and so, you know, responses varied. Uh, girls kind of huddled up and kind of started kind of getting anxious and, and started talking with each other. Uh, I just burst into tears. <laughs> you know, not a good move when you're trying to be cool at youth group. Uh, I remember just bawling on the curb thinking like, where's... Where's Adam? You know, what's the point of coming to youth group if there's no Adam, you know? And, uh, and so we all kind of go inside. The youth pastor sits us down. The police are called. And, uh, and this whole kind of Durham region uh, manhunt kind of begins for Adam. And, uh, and so we're sitting there, and the hours are going by. Uh, all-nighters just tanking. The music's off. The games have stopped. Students are pulling their homework out. Like, it's, it's a disaster. And, uh, <laughs> and after a couple hours, the phone rings. The youth pastor picks it up. And turns out that our sister church, uh, Forest Brook Bible Chapel, uh, too, was having an all-nighter that week. And as a Halloween prank, some students who had just got their licenses thought it would be funny to kidnap one of our people and take them to their youth event. And... Uh, Needless to say, they were no longer our sister church anymore. Uh, they were excommunicated from that day forward. But uh, Adam had showed up at their youth event. The youth pastor figured out what happened, and he was returned to us. But now there's a lot of collateral damage for me socially. Uh, I'm standing there with my same friends, and they're kind of looking at me, and they're like, Mark, I'm pretty sure I saw you crying. And I was like, no, allergies, you know. It's, it's October, you know. And uh, they're like, no, Mark, I'm pretty sure you were on a chair bawling your eyes out right in front of the office. And, and what are you left with? I, I'm lying. Um, I'm trying to protect my ego. I'm, I'm demonstrating pride. I'm doing all these things to kind of mitigate the collateral damage that's happening with my reputation that uh, this tough hockey player who was kind of looked at by other, uh, certainly my peer group as kind of the athletic, kind of the sporty one, uh, is now kind of this little wimp that cries. And, uh, and that, that followed me for a good long while. Even when Adam came back to our, to our event, the first thing everyone said is, you need to go talk to Mark, he's a real mess. <laughs> you know, like, you know, social collateral damage. This, this is the fear of man. This is what the heart of what our passage deals with today is when we uh, allow ourselves to be held hostage by what other people think and feel and towards us, and, and we end up sacrificing godly behavior as a result. And so what Jeremiah is going to talk to us here this morning is exactly what we've already heard in the Ten Commandments. In Exodus chapter 20, you know verse 3 and 4. It says, you shall have no other gods before me. And quite honestly, we're, we're fairly good at recalling that verse, but we, but we limit the definition of what gods means. 
For us, it, and certainly in that context, it meant physical things. There will be no golden calves. There will be no video game systems. There will be no, you know, you fill in the possession that you may want or struggle or idolize. You know, we, we don't think of attitudes and emotions and, and, and social things as, as idols. And they can be. We, don't, we think of idols purely as man-made things rather than not just man itself having power over us. And, and so when we kind of hit Exodus chapter 20, and Jeremiah is going to expound on this, and we know from Jeremiah chapter 11 that they've returned to false gods. And we're going to see the consequences of that, certainly by the time we hit Jeremiah 17. But by the time we get there, Jeremiah expounds even further, saying not only are you worshiping false gods, you're, you're beginning to worship each other. And there are, there are consequences from that. There are logical consequences that come when we hold other people in higher esteem than we ought to. Ed Welch writes a great book called When God is Small and People Are Big. And it's exactly, it's a profound definition of what the fear of man is. It's when people are bigger to us than they ought to be and God subsequently becomes smaller. So if you have your Bibles, Jeremiah chapter 17, uh, we're going to go through it kind of piecemeal into kind of three sections. And we're going to kind of look at the context and, and then look at the consequences of idolatry and what we can do about it. But will you join with me in prayer? Will you pray for me specifically as well as we uh, look at God's word this morning and, and what it has for us? Uh, bow your heads. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for today. Lord, thank you for the privilege it is to open your word. God, I admit that uh, I had to really check myself driving in this morning to make sure that I wouldn't be standing up here a hypocrite. Uh, Lord, forgive me for when I allow people to have too much influence over me, when I stray from doing godly things uh, out of fear of what other people may say and do. God, would you help uh, Harvest Bible Chapel Newmarket to be a people characterized as worshiping God and God alone? Would they not be concerned what other people may think? Would we not uh, be uh, lights under bowls, as it were, not allowing the gospel to go forward because of uh, the fear of the consequences? God, would we be unashamed in our faith and would we hold firm to you? Help us to see your word and see for what it is. Help it to teach and instruct us this morning. And Father, if anything comes out of my mouth that isn't in agreement uh, or conducive to your word going forward, would it be done with and forgotten with? We pray these things in your name. Amen. Jeremiah 17, we'll start in verse 1. Here's the overarching principle for us here this morning, if you're taking notes. Uh, Judah's sin is un, uh, undeniable. It's punishment uh, unavoidable. Judah's sin is undeniable, it's punishment unavoidable. And here's how we know that. If we look, we'll look at the first four verses together. It says, the sin of Judah is written with a pen of iron, with a point of diamond. It is engraved on the tablet of their heart and on the horns of their altars. While their children remember their altars in their ashram, beside every green tree and on the high hills, on the mountains in the open country, your wealth and all your treasures I will give for spoil as the price of your high places for sin throughout all your territory. You shall loosen your hand from your heritage that I gave you, and I will make you serve your enemies in a land that you do not know. For my anger, a fire is kindled that shall burn forever. And so here's what we know first and foremost. There are, there are logical consequences to sin. 
And, and it's amazing how we forget this, that uh, a lot of us, we kind of have these come to Jesus moments and we kind of repent of our sin and we kind of get uh, caught or convicted and we repent of it. And then we kind of expect kind of the collateral damage to kind of just subside. And, and that's just not true. Uh, thank the Lord that the eternal punishment, the debt that we owe because of our sin has been forgiven. Praise the Lord for that. But this side of heaven, there are consequences uh, of our actions. Uh, I remember sitting down not that long ago with a young girl in our church. Um, as was already mentioned, I do uh, biblical counseling at our church. And, and I remember sitting down with this young girl who is now pregnant. And, and I don't know what she was expecting, but after she kind of confessed and repented, she, she still had the child. We still had to talk about how are we going to handle this baby. Uh, for the, the guy who sits in my office and who's gambled away everything he owns, there's still, on the other side of a prayer, there's, you're still broke. You know, there are logical consequences to our sin. And this is what Jeremiah is pointing out, is that your sin is so obvious that there are obvious consequences that come when we minimalize God in our lives. And, and we know this, we know it's undeniable, first and foremost, by the state of their heart. In verse 1, we're told that their hearts are mimic tablets, stones. Their hearts are so hard that they, they are not what Jeremiah 33 tells us. You know, I will take your heart of stone. I will give you a heart of flesh. That hasn't happened yet. They're still living with a heart of stone. And that heart is so hard that the two most toughest durable instruments available at that time are what were needed to characterize and etch those hearts. A pen of iron and a diamond sharpened and placed at the end of it was what was needed to adequately convey and characterize and describe the hardness of their hearts. And this is not a, an overnight thing. You know, when we allow sin to go unchecked in our lives, this is what we can expect. This is the consequence that we can expect, that our hearts become harder and harder and harder and harder. The second reason we know it's undeniable is because it was generational. If you look at the beginning of verse 2, it says, while their children remember their altars and their ashram. This tells us that it's longstanding, it's systemic idolatry that is happening here. This isn't a, a few weeks, this isn't spring break, this is months and months and years and years of idolatry that has happened that has subsequently led to hard hearts, so much so that children, generations are recalling it. There's another reason why children would have been very well aware of the idolatry in that land is because they were often the subjects of it. We're told specifically in this passage that uh, the ashram poles, you see it in the end of verse 2 there, beside every green tree and on the high hills, on the mountains, in the open country, everywhere you look, there would have been physical monuments, uh, shrines for the, for the god Asherah. The other god that's not specifically mentioned in here, but we know it was typical of Babylon and other surrounding areas that would have held the nation of Judah captive was Moloch. <laughs> And the way you worship Moloch was through sacrificing, sacrificing your children. This is, this is deep, serious stuff that's happening here. This isn't just a, a casual fling with an object or with an attitude. This is a long-standing systemic thing where lives are being lost because of hard hearts and idolatry. Its sin is undeniable, and we know that its judgment is unavoidable. God tells them uh, four things. Your wealth and your treasures I will give for spoil. Second thing, you will loosen your heritage. This is massive and a huge thing we can remember this morning. Remember, we're talking about the Jewish people, the chosen people, the people of God. For them to lose sense of their heritage was to lose sense of who God was and what he had promised them. Isn't that true of idolatry? 
the more we fall into idolatry, the more we fall into those places where our hearts become harder and harder, the more distant we become from the Lord. I see it all the time. I see it in my own life. I see how if I'm not vigilant, if I'm not careful to root out sin as often as quickly as possible, how hard my heart can become and how loose my grip becomes on the presence of my Savior. We're told they're going to lose everything. We're they're going to be told that they're going to forget where they came from. Next thing we see, I will give you uh, over to your enemies. We know that Babylon would come and conquer them just a few years later. And the fourth thing, and perhaps the most dangerous, uh, God is angry. We serve a jealous God. We serve a God who is not okay with us putting him on the bench and us seeking and pursuing other things. It's not okay in God's books. Idolatry, uh, it wrecks our hearts. It can wreck our families. It can wreck generations. There's a family that I deal with in our church um, where it's been amazing as I've been walking with this family, you can see how one single decision uh, with a grandfather has changed the dynamics of this family and has changed the theology and has changed the heart and the posture before the Lord. Damage can be done when we don't guard our hearts. Judah's sin is undeniable. Its judgment is unavoidable. And I would argue the same is true for us. There are logical consequences that come as a result of our idolatry. And so what does Jeremiah leave us with? I believe he postures one question for us, and it's the one that we need to answer this morning. And it's a, it's a real powerful one, and it's simply this whom do I fear? This is where Jeremiah pivots and he moves away from the idolatry that's kind of seen throughout the land and he now moves specifically to the fear of man. He moves specifically to how people have become way too prominent and he asks us this question, who are you going to fear? Who is more important in your life? God or man? And so let's, let's look at the next chunk. We're going to read uh, two types of people, I believe, in the room this morning. You are either you are blessed or you are cursed. That's what Scripture tells us here this morning. Uh, verse 5, you know, when we ask ourselves, who do we fear? Here's the description of the cursed man. Thus says the Lord, cursed is the man who trusts in man and makes flesh his strength, whose heart turns away from the Lord. He is like a shrub in the desert and shall not see any good come. He shall dwell in the parched places of the wilderness and in uninhabited salt land. So the first thing we need to know here is, is that Jeremiah makes the important distinction that if you're a cursed individual here this morning, uh, you cannot have split allegiances. Your heart cannot be divided. Uh, some of you don't have to put up your hands. I'll volunteer. Some of us like Seinfeld. Don't put up your hand, but... In your hearts, you know who you are. And, uh, you know, there's a fantastic episode in Seinfeld where relationship George and independent George kind of come into conflict. Some of you know the episode. It's where George's girlfriend begins to mingle with his friends, and now all of a sudden his relationship world and the world where he has no cares and responsibilities kind of collide. And at the climax of this huge rant that he goes on, he says, a George divided amongst itself cannot stand. And it's so true for us in a spiritual sense. Our hearts cannot be divided. Our relationship with the Lord and our relationship with others, one is going to take priority. We, they cannot be equal. Cursed is the man who makes man his strength. 
who makes flesh his strength, whose heart turns away from the Lord. It's one or the other. Your heart is facing the Lord or it's not. And then he gives us three characteristics for us here this morning. Three characteristics of the cursed man. The first one is this. You'll be fruitless. You see it at the beginning of uh, verse 6. He is like a shrub in the desert and shall not see any good come. Remember, this is the person who James 1.8 characterizes as a double-minded man. The context there is James is saying the person who verbally assents to the Lord but then physically takes control of his own life. That person's double-minded, shouldn't expect anything from the Lord. This is the person that Jeremiah is referring to. Whenever there's a difference between what we say and what we do, there is always a need for repentance. And the first uh, symptom of that is when we see the fruit, the one thing that kind of shows people what you're made of. When that leaves, uh, you could have an idol in your life. You're fruitless. John chapter 15 talks specifically about, you know, I am the vine, you are the branches. Abide in me and you will bear fruit. When we remove ourselves from the Lord, we become fruitless and we're characterized by a shrub. You know, you consider what a shrub is in a desert of all places. Of course, you're not going to bear fruit. There's no, there's no nourishment. There's no water. There's nothing there that's going to help you grow. This is what fear of man does. It, it puts us in this vicious cycle where we move constantly searching for more and more and more, but we don't actually have our needs met. We don't actually get what we want. We become fruitless and we become prideful and we move further and further away from the Lord. Here's the second thing. Not only are we fruitless, we're told we're going to be thirsty. We see that in the next verse. He will dwell in the parched places of the wilderness. You're going to be thirsty. Again, the more you engage in the fear of man, only the more you're going to need it. This is true of any addiction. This is true of any idol in our life. It's always the pursuit that gets the adrenaline up. But when you finally have it, what it is you want, it always lets you down and you need a next, more stronger response the next time. I've seen it when people become addicted to substances. I've seen it when people become addicted to pornography. There always needs to be a stronger and stronger response. The joy is in the pursuit. It never actually quenches your thirst. So maybe if you're here this morning and you feel like you're feeling fruitless and you're yearning, you're needing more of something and you don't quite know what, you know, maybe you fear man. The last thing he tells us is not only will you be fruitless, not only will you be thirsty, uh, you'll die. See, in the very last line of verse 7 there, it says, in an uninhabited salt land. Salt has... Some good purposes, it can preserve, it can flavor, it can season, but in too much quantities, it becomes lethal to us. There was a, a World War II veteran named Louis Zamperini. Uh, you can read about him in Laura Hillebrand's book called Unbroken. Uh, there was a movie made about it. Don't watch the movie. It's not at all like the book. The book is fantastic. Go read the book. Um, Louis Zamperini is a World War II fighter pilot. Uh, got shot down, floated in the Pacific Ocean for weeks and weeks, floated ashore. Uh, what he found out then was Japan, and he was put in concentration camps, and he was beaten. He was tortured for the remainder of the war. Came home when the war ended and through a Billy Graham crusade met Jesus. Fantastic story. He actually had the chance to go back to Japan and find the very people who 
beat the tar out of them. And there was these beautiful moments of forgiveness that are recorded in this book. It's, it's an unbelievable book. Uh, but what stood out to me uh, as I was reading is as he's talking about floating in the Pacific Ocean for weeks, if not months, his friends are literally being eaten by sharks. Uh, their rations have run out, their water has run out, and the only liquid around him is seawater. And yet he knew from his training that seawater doesn't actually quench your thirst, and in appropriate, big, large amounts, it becomes lethal. You can't drink it. And so he talks about this constant tension about not leaning over the side of his raft to drink the seawater, even knowing that it could kill him. This is the problem with idolatry. We've all had fair warning. We all know what the consequences can be, but the decision lies in, are you going to reach over and are you going to drink from it? Understand you will be fruitless, you will be thirsty, and it will ultimately kill you. Strong words for the cursed person here this morning. Praise the Lord, there are answers. Praise the Lord for Romans 8.1, which says, In him there is now no condemnation. We serve a God who is gracious, who is forgiving, who is long-suffering. Psalm 103 talks about, and I thank the Lord for this every single day. Lord, thank you that you don't treat me as I really deserve, that you are slow to anger and abounding in love. There is a solution. There is hope for us here this morning. And so let's look at that. Let's look at the, uh, the blessed man. We've looked at the cursed man. Now here's the alternative uh, in verse 8. He is like a tree planted by water. It sends out its roots by the stream. It does not fear when heat comes, for its leaves remain green. It is not anxious in the year of drought, for it does not cease to bear fruit. Right away we see the difference. We're not a shrub anymore. When our heart is for the Lord, when we have an undivided heart that is soft and focused on the Lord, we're no longer a shrub. We are a, a tree. And we are a tree with roots beside a stream where there is a constant flow of water. We're blessed. There are inherent blessings that come from a heart that is turned towards the Lord. And they're the exact opposite. It's amazing what Jeremiah does. He, he flips the curses around and, and he shows that the, the opposite is true in the Lord. The first thing he tells us is that we become fruitful. Look at the very last line of verse 8. For it does not cease to bear fruit. Colossians chapter 2 verses 6 say, Therefore as you receive Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him rooted and built up in him and established in the faith just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. Paul was wise enough to add verse 8, which tells us this, see to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition. You see, Paul knew the risk. He knows that we, like sheep, are prone to going astray. Uh, we like to follow people. We aspire to be leaders, but we find comfort in following people. And that is a dangerous, slippery slope for us here this morning when we consider where our hearts are postured and pointed towards. Paul says, be rooted, grow, utilize that stream to bear fruit for the Lord. It's amazing. I, I was sitting down in my office uh, a couple weeks ago, a uh, fantastic young lady who uh, I've had the privilege of meeting and working with, and, uh, and she came in really wrestling with anxiety, really wrestling. She, she had made some choices, but again, some, some things just 
life happened and things didn't break her way and she was really struggling with this. Uh, and it was amazing how in the course of our meetings, you could see between the sessions, you could see almost overnight through the course of that week, uh, her demeanor, her attitude, and her joy increased when she made the decision to not focus on how she had been wronged and focused rather on bearing fruit, on being obedient. It was amazing the transformation in her when she became thankful, when she sought peace and joy and she sought to do the right thing even though it was hard. It was amazing the transformation that happened in her over the course of a week. This is what fruitful people do as we're gonna see in just a moment, even when the heat gets turned up, even when drought comes, God-fearing people do the right things and they remain faithful, they bear fruit, even in difficulty. So we're told that they are fruitful. Here's the second thing that we're told. Not only are they gonna be fruitful, they're gonna be unafraid. We see that in verse eight, uh, does not have fear when the heat comes. You know, notice the objective here is, is not to remove ourselves from any heat. It's not to avoid conflict. It's not to avoid issues. It's how we respond in the midst of them. James 1, 1 Peter 1 talk about the fact that challenges, suffering is coming. But we are unafraid in the midst of those. We bear fruit in that heat. We are unafraid in that heat. We're even told that we're not going to be anxious in that year of drought. Philippians chapter 2, verse 6 and 7 says, Be anxious for nothing but prayers of supplications and thanksgiving. Make your requests known to God, and the peace of God that transcends your understanding will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. See, the reality here is, is not that we're uh, trying to avoid confrontation or problems or sin in our life. We're not trying to avoid that, but we're changing the source of our strength. We're not double-minded people that proclaim to believe in Jesus but then are doing our own thing. We're fruitful people that are unafraid to do the hard things to remain faithful to the Lord even when things become difficult. I had a great uh, pastor growing up uh, who properly explained to me the meaning of Psalm 23. And some of you know it, right? The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. You know, as, as a teenager, I interpreted that as the Lord is my shepherd, I'm not going to need everything because he's going to give it all to me. That's how I interpreted Psalm 23 until a very godly man you know, kicked me in the back of the head and said, no, 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 no. <laughs> the point of Psalm 23.1 is, the Lord is my shepherd. He is all I need. That's the point of Psalm 23. Verse 1 sets the trajectory for the rest of the psalm. That It's not that he's going to give us what we want to help us be obedient. It's that he is all we need to be obedient. This is what people who fear the Lord made of. They're fruitful people. They're not afraid because Christ is enough. And so if you're here this morning and you feel like you're thirsty, you feel like you're, uh, you're dying inside, you got to ask yourself some tough questions this morning. You know, is Jesus enough for you? Do you know enough of him? Is he a part of you? Do you pursue him? Do you fear the Lord? See, the alternative is, as First Peter tells us, that the devil prowls around like a lion seeking to devour and destroy. I really do believe that this is a key issue in our churches and in our society today. Idolatry, and specifically the fear of man, I believe is a, is a very poignant strategy that Satan uses to bring division 
and, uh, and weakness into the hearts of believers. And I think until we become more acutely aware of how we can be prone to doing these things, uh, we're going to be vulnerable. We have to make sure our hearts are soft. We have to make sure they're attached to that vine, that we are being fruitful, that we were unafraid. And here's the last thing. Not only are we going to be fruitful, not only are we going to be unafraid, we're going to be unceasing. You see, we, at, the verse eight, at the end of verse 8, we're told that we do not cease to bear fruit. I had another godly man tell me that the mark of a Christian is not what he does at his peaks. It's the trajectory over his spiritual life. All of us have peaks and valleys, but are we trending the right way? That is the mark of maturity, that we don't cease. We don't give up. We don't bow out. I remember going through a particularly low point in my Bible college career. Um, ironically, with Pastor Mike sitting beside me. A relationship had ended, a relative had died, a lot had packed into about a two-and-a-half-week span. And I remember sitting beside Pastor Mike on a Monday evening class in the Book of Romans. And I remember concluding at the back of that classroom, there's no way God can be everything he says he is. And thank the Lord he does not give up on me like I give up on him. It's amazing what he taught me. It's amazing what he can show and what he can demonstrate and how he can bring healing to our hearts when we remain faithful to him. When we don't give up, when we remain faithful, we don't cease. Psalm 103 Sorry, Psalm 1, verses 1, 2, 3, tell us this. Blessed is the one who does not walk and step with the wicked or stand in the way that sinners take or sit in the company of mockers. Here it is. But whose delight is in the law of the Lord and who meditates on his law day and night. That person is like a tree planted by streams of water which yields fruit in season and whose leaf does not wither. Whatever they do prospers. The word of the Lord will stand, church. Are you in it? Are you faithfully following Jesus even when it doesn't make sense or even when it seems difficult? The blessed person unceases in their devotion and in their faithfulness to the Lord. Is that you here this morning? Whom do you fear? And so Jeremiah closes and, you know, it ends kind of on a, you know, you think about the general context, it's probably the most depressing passage that Jeremiah writes. He says, look nation, as a whole, you're toast. <laughs> you know, but praise the Lord, there's a solution he does leave for us. We look at verses 9 and 10, it says, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? It's not getting better yet. Verse 10 says, I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind and give every man according to his ways according to the fruit of his deeds. Again, it's not sounding any more hopeful. But thank the Lord for verse 14. It says, Heal me, O Lord, and I shall be healed. Save me, and I shall be saved, for you are my praise. There is hope, and there is healing, and there is salvation for us here this morning. When we consider the, the so what, what do we do with this? How, what do we do with all this information? couple things I would say for you is if you're the blessed person here this morning, God bless you. Uh, please come talk to me and tell me how you do it. <laughs> I'd love to learn from you. Uh, and thank you for the example you're setting and your faithfulness uh, 
Our churches need that. We need faithful, fruitful, unafraid, committed, and unceasing members in our churches. Uh, Come talk to me. I'd love to pray for you. Uh, But if you're here this morning and you're feeling kind of fruitless, you're feeling kind of thirsty, and you feel like you're just kind of on a hamster wheel, kind of running yourself into the ground, uh, there is hope. There is healing here this morning. There is repentance. Please do not leave today without first standing before the Lord and writing your heart. We know the promise comes later in Jeremiah. I will take that heart of stone and I will give you a heart of flesh. Save me, O Lord, and I will be saved. Heal me and I will be healed. Do that work here this morning. Again, come talk to me. I'd love to pray for you. Uh, I'd love to hear more of your story. Uh, There will be others up here who I know would love to pray for you as well. Uh, Don't leave here today without doing that work. I know you've got mind-blowing coffee waiting for you. (laughs) Don't, Don't leave, I promise. I'll buy you a cup if it runs out. I'd rather you do this work uh, before you head out there. Check your heart. Who do you fear? Who has more power and control over you here this morning? And if you're here this morning and you're thinking... Gee whiz, I picked a heavy Sunday to check out church. Um, (laughs) My apologies to you in advance, but there's hope for you as well. Uh, Romans 10 says, If you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Uh, There is hope for us here this morning. There is salvation for the person whose heart is focused on the Lord. And if you're hearing about this for the first time, you don't know quite what we're talking about. You, you've never heard of the cross. You don't know what Jesus did when he died and rose again for the forgiveness of your sins. If you need to hear more about that, please come talk to me. Come talk to anyone up here who would uh, happily pray and explain that to you. Uh, the gospel, and I believe this wholeheartedly, I, I've seen both sides of the counseling room. Uh, success rates are incredible when the gospel is involved. It's amazing how lonely it is when it isn't. Uh, the word of the Lord will stand forever. And we would love to tell you more about that because your, your heart, your life is at stake. Uh, please come talk to us and learn what it means to put your heart and your trust in the Lord. But as we close today, if you're still unsure of who you are, uh, I thought I'd leave us with kind of a rhetorical quiz. Again, Ed Welch writes that book, uh, When People Are Big and God Is Small. He has this little diagnostic tool Uh, to help us try to understand, you know, maybe I do have a problem with idolatry. Maybe I do uh, have a problem with the fear of man. And so answer these questions in your heart, and then we'll pray. We're going to sing. And uh, and again, do the heart work here this morning. Don't leave until you have. Um, So here's what the quiz says. Question number one, who do you think about most? Do you struggle with peer pressure? Are you overcommitted and have a hard time saying no to people? Do you need something from your spouse or other relationships? Their respect, their attention? Is self-esteem always a critical concern for you? Do you ever feel as though you'll be exposed or an imposter? Do you change your decisions because of what other people think? Do you feel empty or meaningless? Are you easily embarrassed? Do you ever lie, exaggerate, or tell white lies? Are you jealous of other people? Do other people often make you angry or depressed? Do you avoid people? 
And here's the last one. Are you overconfident in yourself and always comparing yourself and one-upping others and subsequently putting others down? Let's pray together. Lord, thank you for your love. Thank you for your grace. Father, thank you that there is no condemnation in you. Father, it doesn't matter what we have done or how far we have gone. Uh, we have a faithful, uh, unceasing Savior who welcomes us with loving and open arms. It's not a license for sin, Lord. It's not an excuse for our sin. But Father, when we have wandered, we know that you, uh, you leave the flock to come find us. God, thank you for your pursuit of my heart. Thank you for your pursuit in my life. God, I pray that would be evident here this morning. I pray more than anything, Lord, that Harvest Bible Chapel Newmarket would be a church of honesty. It would be a place of integrity and authenticity. It wouldn't be a group of people that come here on a Sunday morning to play church. But God, where there is hurt, where there is idolatry, where there is weakness, God, would it be brought into the light so that it could be repented of and dealt with? God, would you uh, do a, an awesome work here this morning? If I'm the only one wrestling with this, Lord, then continue to feed and, and heal me. But Lord, if I'm not alone, would we have uh, a sense of your love in this community here this morning? Uh, God, would we know more of who you are? Would we be blessed people, people who are fruitful, people who are unceasing in their devotion to you? God, who aren't thirsty, that thirst is quenched. We, we can, uh, with no fear, enter those hard times, Lord, and have your peace. God, if that's not us this morning, would you make us that? Would you bring us to that place of repentance? Do that in me, Lord. Do that in this church. Father, they've already been so good to me. It's been such a treat to be here. Bless them, Lord. I can't wait to hear what you're going to do. Help us now sing to you. Lord, would we uh, leave here looking more and more like your son than when we first began. We pray these things in your name. Amen.